Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hope everybody's doing well. We have a guest calling in today from Philadelphia, and his name is Todd Gordon, and he recently has released a book called Todd is God, and you might recognize the name from the ECW being the founder. Welcome to the show. Todd, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. I think we all have these things, these innate things in us that kind of take us down different roads. What was the innate thing in you that pushed you in this direction with the ECW? Well, I loved wrestling from the time I was six, seven, eight years old. Back then, we only got the WWF up here. So I was a Bruno San Martino guy, and I didn't really know much about any other kind of wrestling other than the WWF. So it was... Uh, Bruno and Killer Kowalski and the Grand Brothers and Crazy, uh, George the Animal Steel, Chief J. Strong. That's what I grew up on. I loved it because I believed in it. It was like Bruno made everything seem real. And one of the big pet peeves I had when I first got into the business was I couldn't watch it anymore. They took what I loved and just destroyed it. Everybody was a cartoon character. There was a race car driver and a dentist and a Papa Shango making spells across the arena to make the ultimate warrior throw up. It was like, and they had their own cartoons with that on top of that on Saturday mornings. They had turned the entire business into a cartoon. And that just was horrible to me because it ruined everything I loved. So when I wanted to start this promotion, it was, I'm going to do it the way I would want to see it. I want to put on shows that I would want to go to. And that was the ECW style, which of course grew and grew. Now I got to ask you this. My dad always talked about going to some of the wrestling shows in New Jersey, you being from Philadelphia. Did you guys do any shows at the Ice House? We actually did not cross the bridge to Jersey at all because really? I had a, a gentleman's agreement with the promoter over there when I first started before we had grown into much of anything uh, and was just doing bar shows at the time with a man named Dennis Carluzzo who became famous in the ECW lore for the night that we threw the title down, the NWA title. And so we never crossed that bridge because I kept my word. And mm -hmm. he didn't wrestle in Philly. We didn't wrestle in Jersey. We didn't share wrestlers. So now we actually did not run shows in Jersey. Hmm. New York, but not Jersey. So being a fan of, of, of wrestling and, and starting this promotion company, I mean, when you initially started it, where did you think the opportunity would, would go? I didn't think it was going anywhere. To me, it was the fun hobby. I took over for a promotion that had died and burned out, TWA. They went bankrupt because they had delusions of grandeur. And the guys who worked there came to me and said, listen, you know, I had, by the way, I've been back, you know, like a backstage kind of like financier for part of it, you know, small part of it. Uh, so I was helping out funding the companies. The guys knew me and they approached me one day in my office and said, listen, this guy's out of business. We all just want to do it because we love it. We just want to do even the bar shows, which are once a month in front of and Mike Smith's sports bar. Can you please just get a license and let us continue doing this once a month? So to me, it was just like a hobby. It was like, oh, wow, now I get to, you know, you know when you're a little kid, you're playing with your guys. Now you get real guys who are really throwing wrestling shows. That was great. But I never thought it was going to go anywhere. I never intended to go anywhere. Until one day, the guy who shot the videotapes, the VHS tapes, mind you, of our bar shows, was maybe we sold eight. 
total in like a year or whatever it was. He came to me and said he met someone who was putting on, starting a brand new sports channel in Philadelphia. We called Sports Channel Philadelphia. And they were going to put on the Sixers and the Flyers and the Phillies, but they had no other programming. So they had the rest of the day to kill. They could only rerun that game so many times. So you want to know if we could make a pilot. I said, a pilot? We're doing bar shows. But, you know, you get an opportunity. It may not only come around once. You grab it. Mm-hmm. So, indeed, I got together a pilot show. We went to a boys' center, filled it up with, you know, free tickets for all the kids. So it was packed. Terrible lighting. It was like gymnasium lighting. It was like nothing like you would eventually see. And we did a pilot. The guy right away goes, Done. You know, every Tuesday night at six o'clock. I said, "Whoa, I gotta give me give me some time to get started here." Like, wow, they're ready to go full speed ahead with a TV show. I had no experience in anything like that. I mean, my experience is in the jewelry business, uh, creating diamonds. I mean, it's all new to me. So, indeed, from there, I ended up meeting Eddie Gilbert. I knew Eddie had experience in TV. He had uh, done it in Alabama. He had done it in Tennessee. He had written TV, he had booked TV. And I asked him if he'd be interested in you know, taking over and running the book. He said to me, you got TV? I said, starting like two weeks, yeah. So he said, all right, we made a deal. He moved up to Philly. He became my booker. And uh, together we worked hand in hand and came up with an idea for a product. Very Memphis-like product at the time. You know, where the moon dogs just come out every Saturday morning with the trash cans and Jerry Lawler. So he's like really imitating, repeating a lot of the stuff down, from down south. But up here... If you didn't get the magazines, you've never seen anything like that before. Mm-hmm. This was all new to this area. It's all new to the Northeast period. So we took that, and that's how we started at that level. And that groundswell grew, grew and grew. And, and when you were thinking about these shows, well, how much liability was there? Guys? Well, you had to have insurance for every show, obviously. You had insurance for the yeah. fans. You had insurance for the, not, the show not happening. So the fans would never get ripped off for their ticket money. Obviously, bodily injury. The wrestlers were independent contractors, so the insurance didn't really cover them. It covered the building. It covered the fans. And it was something you could not run a show without. I mean, the State Athletic Commission would come down and say, show me your insurance certificate. Show me your doctor. Show me your this. So you had all these things in line before you even run a show like that. So it was like, you know, they had, it was like boxing when Melvina was at New York State Boxing Commissioner. Did, did, did wrestling at that time have those strict guidelines? Well, here's what it was. There was definitely a Pennsylvania State Athletic Commissioner, and he would send someone to the shows. And there were certain things you were and were not allowed to do during the shows. We were the anti-establishment, so anything you weren't allowed to do, we were going to do during the shows pretty much. And that's what attracted our audience, because our audience was the anti-establishment. We were the Howard Stern of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Okay, he could not be on regular radio because he was too wild for regular radio. We were too wild for you know, regular wrestling. We were different. We mm-hmm. actually were extreme. We even got to use that word. And when TV hit, what did you expect? I was living minute by minute. I, this was like rolling down the hill faster than I could even keep up with. And that was back in the very, very early days, the pre-Paul Heyman days, the pre-growth of extreme. Even then, it's a learning curve. I'm learning every minute of every day. I'm learning about the lighting and about the sound and who to hire. You know, there's so many different aspects to a show. It's not just what you see in the ring. There's a lot that goes on backstage and behind the scenes, including the lighting, the sound, uh, you know, the setup of the building. Uh, lots of, I mean, it, it was a nonstop. I didn't have time to think back then. Mm-hmm. What I had time to do was move and react and act. I would imagine it's a timing thing. I mean, I, we do live entertainment and, you know, if you have a lot of moving parts and you're filming, what was the first couple ones they had a production for? Like, was it, was it nerve wracking? Did you have some issues? Did you run into some problems? Yes, we did. Our very first, we did the pilot. Now I arranged for a, 
TV taping for our first couple shows at Cabrini College, a local college not far from you know, Philadelphia. 35 inches of snow fell day of our first TV taping. I mean, uh-oh. Wow. Still going back, we're taping you know, for TV for like the first three or four shows right now with more to come tomorrow. 35 inches of snow. On top of that, I think to myself, well, at least we get the backup on a college campus. All the college kids are going to see Snook and Morocco, Morocco, Snook and Terry Funk, Eddie Gilbert were there. They were on spring break or winter break, I beg your pardon. The campus was deserted. Didn't think that one out. So I said, you learn as you go. So there was nobody there. We had about 80 people, maybe. And then we had to get them to all do us a favor. And that's so Philly, by the way. They, mm-hmm. they want to help you. They care. The fans down here, they became part of the product, but they care from day one. We just all moved to one side, one little section. So we try to keep the camera hitting them as much as possible. Because anytime we moved in any other direction, you can see the building was empty. It was a rough start for that TV taping. At the end of, end of the first show, still my first show. I mean, I'm feeling some proud pride. I put on a damn TV show. It's going to go mm-hmm. in the air. I stand up next to Terry Funk and our play-by-play guy at the time, Jay Sully, and I'm saying, fans, this is great. This is the best thing. Wonderful. We're going to be back here every week. It's the same kind of action. And Terry Funk puts his arm around me on live on TV, and he goes, that's okay. We'll get better. And I went, ah. It was like, psst. Let all the air out of the balloon. I went, yeah, yeah, we'll get better. See you next week, fans. It's like, what? Meanwhile, God bless Terry Funk. He's the most important part of my entire wrestling career in terms of building the company. And God bless him also. He wrote the forward to my book, which means a whole lot to me. I miss Terry a lot. I'm so grateful to him for everything. Well, being in the entertainment business, I think the things that shine through are characters. You know, Terry Funk, from what I can remember, was a character. Now, do you think those bigger-than-life characters is what helped your success? I'd say it's the exact opposite. Terry Funk wasn't a bigger-than-life character. He was playing Terry Funk, the guy mm-hmm. who had been through the mill and gone all along through the uh, grind. NWA champion, his champion, he said, hey, I found a bunch of guys who aren't bullshit. They just, they're real. They want to just go oh. out there and do their thing. And that's what he did. And Terry was always about trying to elevate everybody else in the locker room. Without Terry Funk, Sabu would never have been heard of. Without Terry Funk, the public enemy would never have been heard of. Without Terry Funk, Shane Douglas would never have been elevated to where he was. He had programs with all of them at the very beginning, making them seem like they were main events just like he was. He had main mm-hmm. events everywhere. He was so generous and so giving, which is why to the last day of that company, he was always there for us. Well, when I say bigger than life character, I mean, you know, energy level, someone who kind of drives a ship, someone who's kind of out front, drives the narrative. Is that, does that mean anything to you? Did you see a difference or? Not so much for Terry. I mean, I mean, all of them. I mean, take Sam in. Perfect example. Sam used to come out in a wetsuit and a surfboard. You know, it wasn't getting over because characters don't get over. What Vince was trying to do was not getting over in Philadelphia. That's not what they want to see. They don't mm-hmm. want to see someone come out and pretend to be. A witch doctor, pretend to be you know, a race car driver. That's not here to what they want to see. This is two guys who don't like each other, want to go out there and beat the living daylights out of each other until one of them wins. So I said, mm-hmm. at one point, I said, at that point, Paul was involved. I said, hey, we got to change Sandman's gimmick. There's no way this guy can go out there anymore in a wetsuit and a surfboard. Mm-hmm. Said, what do you want to do? I said, I want him to let him go out there and be himself, which is the barroom brawler. That's who he is. He's your everyday guy who's up on a roof all day or doing construction all day. Goes to the bar at the end of the day, drinks and drinks and drinks, and then gets in a fight at the end of the night. That's mm-hmm. who Sam Man is. I know the guy. That's him. So we did. I go, I'm not done. 
I want him to go to the ring with a beer and a cigarette. He looked at me like I was speaking Chinese. What is it a beer and a cigarette? You can't send a guy to the ring with a cigarette, beer. I said, why not? I got nothing. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. So sure enough, we sent Sammy into the ring with a beer and a cigarette. The place went nuts. We went into the ring smoking a cigarette. Like it was unheard of. Little mm-hmm. drinking a beer and smashing it against his head, which was Sammy's added that himself. So he's bleeding before he got in the ring. It was mm-hmm. something no one had ever seen before. And then Paul, to his credit, who was doing the TV at that time, came up with the concept of making every segment that Sandman was on black and white. The whole show's in color. And you see Sandman for a minute smoking that cigarette and smoke billowing out in black and white television. It looked amazing visually. And his match, same thing. He'd cut it down to two minutes out of the ten, whatever it was. Just show highlights all in black and white. Many years later, the NWO did the same thing in WCW. But we had done that. We did it first with Sandman. Interesting. We touched on a guy we both know, Damon Feldman. In 2020, I think it was right before the pandemic hit, we did a show with Damon in uh, Atlantic City. And my guy, Catfish Cooley, fought the Sandman in that show. So, yeah, Sandman, he was definitely a trip and a funny guy, and we had a good time with him. Uh, how many years was he with you in your group? Damon has been my best friend for 30 years from the day I started. Oh, okay, he's still nice. my best friend. We're tomorrow we're going to out tomorrow to see a doctor that he knows that gives stem cell shots. We both are like cripples today from the shots we took during the course of the run of ECW. And he found this doctor that's like a homeopathic stem cell. And guess what? It's been a miracle for both of us. Mm-hmm. I went from a cane to no cane. He went from not being able to lift his arm to throwing a ball 40 yards again. It's like a miracle. But yeah, Sam is still my best friend. Always will be. 30 nice. years in. Nice. Now, you said you were in the diamond business when all this was started to yeah, take off? I still am. I mean, I never left that business. I kept that's a family business. Right now, it's 163 years old. It's like the third oldest business in all of Philadelphia. My daughter's now there. She's fourth generation, but I was always in that business. I ran that business while I ran ECW, and I'm still in that business today. Interesting. And that's, and that's uh, your dad or your mom? Your grandfather, mom my father, you know, generation after generation, my kids. Now, where's your, what's your lineage? Where's your family from? My father and uh, my mother was European originally. Uh, they came over from Romania, I believe, when she was like two. So she was born and raised, basically raised here. My dad also, same thing, raised here. But that's where the lineage would go. And you having brothers or sisters? I have two. Well, I had two sisters. And when you read the book, you'll, that's probably the hardest chapter for me in the book is uh, I talk about losing one sister two years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, really, really tough for me because she was my best friend in the whole world. And that chapter is actually one chapter I did not dictate to Sean. Sean, by the way, did a great job. I mean, I want you to know, we spent eight hours a week, at least, me telling Sean stories. He said, tell me about the Sandman. Six hours later, after like 20 insane stories, where he's like going, you got to be kidding me. He would have to go back and try to extrapolate and figure out a chronological order to put them all in. It was not easy. All I did was just tell stories. And we did this for about six months, eight months. So many hours of tape, pull from and draw from, and then try to put in some kind of order that made sense. The only chapter I did not dictate to him or tell stories to him were the one story about my sister, which I actually wrote myself. Now, how long was the run with ECW? How long was your run? <laughs> I started in 92. I was good heart in 89 to, to 92, basically. 
Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I started ECW Eastern in 92. I left the business in 90, I left the company in 97. After that, I did a few other things. I uh, booked for 3PW, and then I uh, ran PWU for a while, and then that was it. Now, when I guess it's what the WWE now, <laughs> now were they going the same time you were going? Oh, everybody was going. Vince Bischoff and us, yeah. We went from an 80 person bar show to the number three company in the world, which wow. is incredible. I mean, who, how does that happen? That mm-hmm. whole story of the book, like, how did this guy who had a jewelry store in Philadelphia start a little hobby in the bar and within two years, like, on pay per view? The story's insane. And what it's kind of true. numbers were you doing with the pay-per-view and stuff? I'm going to be honest you, I don't even remember the numbers at this point. I remember the costs. Mm-hmm. I remember you had to come up with like $250,000 ahead of time mm-hmm. for pay-per-view. And you didn't get paid for that pay-per-view until maybe a month or two afterwards. But you still had to put the money up for the next pay-per-view before you got paid for the first one. I remember mm-hmm. that $250,000 each time you wanted to run one. How do we do this? How can this be done? You got to be a billionaire like Vince or Turner was. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. But uh, the actual buy rates, I, I don't remember. There were like 28 years ago now. Now, if you had a, a five-year run with ECW, when did you start to see the business change and people like Vince start to put their arms around it and kind of... Well, I mean, obviously, we became the talk, you know, the business. You want to know who are these guys? Like, what is? why am I hearing this name? What is this? And that's what started the attitude here with Vince. And he started by taking Steve Austin from us, which we expected at some point. I mean, it wasn't like he's been there for long. Then he took Mick Foley from us, Cactus Jack, and he had been there for years with us. And he was trying to get the guys in there that could do there what they were doing here. But he didn't understand what that meant. See, it wasn't just plain violence. There was storylines here. Everything had a meaning here. And it wasn't just violence. We also had comedy, BWO public enemy uh and we had cha- good mat wrestling eddie guerrero and, and dean malenko uh, guys that can really re- really work so we gave the shows one third of each we tried to make everybody happy give everybody something that they would enjoy so he was coming in and, and making offers to your guys and plucking them out of your system for the most part yeah and so was wcw though i mean mm-hmm. all fairness just be honest they, they ended up taking first sherry martell and nancy sullivan raven uh, michael awesome and they came after our guys pretty heavily too and Rick, <laughs> ray mysterio jr guerrero blank they all went there wcw probably plucked a lot more guys than wwe did but we couldn't compete with the salaries so he just outlasted everybody with because he had more money yep whoever had the most won he had the most and he won Nice. And what do you think about 
how the industry looks today? That's an interesting question. You can't criticize it. The industry is more successful dollar-wise than it was 30 years ago when I was running, even with them included. I mean, the, the numbers that they're doing, the money they're taking in with merchandise and these shows at their stadium, it's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God bless them. I mean, they have found a formula that works. You know, it's just steaming ahead. It was, it was like there's no stopping it. I sometimes find the storylines, other than the bloodline recently, I find most of the storylines boring, not interesting. Certainly not somebody, something you want to get mostly involved with as you're watching each week. They did that with the bloodline for eight months. It was a very intriguing, interesting storyline. It was the only one they had, but it said something. Now I don't see any of that there. It's, it's awful. You want to get people invested. You want the fans to be invested in what you're doing. We had Sam in, and did the blinding angle. Where we had blind, Sam was blind, but he had a cigarette in the eye. And we shot it so realistically that we took the cameras into the dressing room. I was holding his eye. And the good guys and the bad guys were all like combined. And it was like crazy. It wasn't like good against bad. It was like everybody's worried about Sam in. He's going to be okay. Took him out, you know, with a bleeding eye. It was like crazy. And he didn't come back for like over a month. And everybody in the dressing room, we told nobody. They're going to see okay. Is he okay? I don't know. It looks like he's going to have to retire. If we sold to them, to our guys, this business, tell a wrestler, telephone, telegraph, it's the same thing. You can't tell one soul anything if you want to make it work. Whether it's bringing somebody in no one knows about under a mask, whether it's well, whatever, man, but you can't tell anybody. And no one knew that Samman wasn't hurt legitimately. So we brought him back for his retirement ceremony and did that whole angle. It was phenomenal. It was everybody in that audience, and it's a smart crowd. It's a crowd that knows what they're, you know, how the business works. So when we got them, we were getting everybody, and they are all emotionally invested. Our fans were na- amazing. It was like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They brought weapons to the ring, the shows, from home. The kitchen sink, canoe paddles, chainsaws. It was insane. We, you know, we always try to involve them. And the more we involved them, the more part of the show they became. So without those fans right there, that symbiotic energy, I don't think we ever could have gone as far as we did. So what, what do you think about the injection of these social media celebrities? into the business. What do you think about that? I think whatever brings eyes to the product. We brought in a UFC fighter one time, Paul Varlins, to help get Taz over. Almost had Leon Spinks there. Another story in the book, by the way. Out of it at a bar one night, we ran into him. And we told him what we wanted to do. He said, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. But he was so wasted, he he couldn't perform. And uh, there's actually some funny anecdotes (laughs) about that, but they're all in the book. I'll I'll let you read it there. But yeah, there's all kinds of wild stories, by the way, in the book. Let me give you a great story from the road. I traveled with Samian, Scorpio, Bill Alfonso, and myself, and Nancy Sullivan for a long time. Everywhere we went, we traveled together. And we stayed at the same hotel in Philadelphia every month, the night before and after the big arena shows at the East W Arena. So we're sitting in the room one night. It's, again, Samian, Scorpio, myself, and Fonzie. And Samian's whacked as always, drunk. And he goes, Yo, is this room 705? We all look at each other and go, uh, Yeah, why? He goes, Oh, my God. He runs to the corner of the room. He starts ripping up the carpet. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? I gotta pay for this shit. What's the matter with you? Stop it. Pulls out an eight ball of cocaine. <laughs> Girl, what? Now, mind you, he put it there six months before that. He was going to Utah and didn't want to fly with it. We stayed in the hotel six times since then. It wasn't until he saw 705 and went, I just remembered. <laughs> now we're dying. All yeah. of a sudden, Scorp. What? Scorp! Scorp gets up. Now Fonzie and I are trailing behind the zoom. Walks to the elevator. 
giant planter. He goes, help me lift that. So he and Scrooge are pushing and lift up his giant planter. He goes, I got another one. He pulls out. Now, you know, we're on the floor. We're dying. Who does that? He planted two hate balls in the hotel and didn't remember for six months. That's one of the many road stories in the book. That's wild. I mean, what what was the what was the passion to get you to do this book? Sean and I had done some DVDs together. He was doing kayfabe commentaries, which is business, and so we got to know each other. And we had a couple of laughs. We became friendly after the DVDs were done. You know, we talk once in a while on the phone, and I'd tell him a story or two, and he'd say, "You've got to write a book." I, said, I am not writing a book. Stop. You've got to write a. These stories are un- it's unbelievable. No one knows this stuff. You've got to write a book. I said, I'm not writing a book. Then we talked about the whole Paul Heyman, Todd Gordon split and how that happened and what happened. And when I told him the true story there, that was it. I'm not hanging up until you agree to write this book. The world needs to know that story. They need to know what really happened there. Why you left. That's huge. That's not what everybody thinks is why. Because there was a story out there, but that was a work. It wasn't real. Tell mm-hmm. the real story. You owe your legacy that. You're getting older. You know, pushing mm-hmm. 70 here. All right, I'll do it. What the hell? It's a pandemic. I had extra time. Blah, blah, blah. So we started doing tapes, the audio tapes, as I said, zoomed, Zoom tapes, but eight hours a week for months and months and months. And we had to cut so much out just to get it into a time, just get enough in the book. And the book's packed with nothing but stories, I'm telling you. It'll feel like you're sitting there right now, like me, telling you stories. That's exactly what it feels like reading the book. And there's some great stories in there. And, but yeah, that was what did it. He pushed me to say, I'm just sitting here and people say, Paul Heyman's ECW, Paul Heyman's ECW. When it was your ECW, you hired the guy. You brought him in, you gave him a job. Like, how is it his like? Does that buy? I said, I'm past that point. 25 years ago, I don't think about it. We talked me into it. We did it. I'm glad we did it. Again, we cut out enough to make five books, but yeah, I'm glad, glad we did it. Now, the name, Todd, is God. What does that represent? <laughs> well, that is because in the arena, as I said, the fans were amazing. They had chance for everything. They came out first match, and they would say, Shaw, Shaw, shit, shit. And the next thing you know, he became the Shaw. Each person who came out that had a different chant for her. They'd sing songs. Stevie, da, da, up to Stevie Richards. The guy came out to mop the floor in between matches. They'd go, mop, guy. They had, a, they had something for everybody. When I would come out, they would yell, Todd is God. Started with the guy in the front row, sign guy, we called him. who held a sign up that said, Todd is God. After that, the fans would chant that when I come out to make an announcement or to fight Fonzie or whatever the case may be. So that's where we got the title from, from that chant. There's no religion involved. Now, you're talking about a story about Sandman and what he planted in the hotel. What what was behind the scenes like? Did you did you ever try to discipline the guys or did you try to make them work out? Was there any structure behind the scenes? I'm sure it's tough trying to wrangle all those guys. Actually, I partied with them most of the time, to be honest with you. My, my deal was, you don't come to work not able to work you come to work messed up see ya what you do after the show that's your business i'm not your father go do your thing go do your thing there was the you know the drinking crowd here the coke crowd here the heroin crowd who knows what they're all doing i don't know but i'm just saying no i parted with my friends my way never thought anything about it unfortunately in retrospect back then i used to always make jokes in interviews saying if you can pass a drug test you can't get into ecw we don't let you in that was a joke. It wasn't so funny years later because we lost a lot of great people. So in retrospect, that was not funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did, the scene was very much a druggy scene behind the scene, but never during the shows or before the shows. 
Now, with live entertainment making a little bit of a surge and, and you know, especially in the, the sporting space, do you see this sport changing? Do you see it modifying? Do you see anything over the horizon that would be different? Well, the of the country changed. I mean, put it this way. We could not put our show on TV today. No way. Politically correct has gone so far against what we were just politically. In fact, one of our first T-shirts said "politically incorrect," and on the back said "and damn proud of it." Because that's who we were. We were the rebels. We were the legend that could. We were the non-WWE corporate guys, the non-WCW corporate guys. We're just a band of misfits putting on good shows, and they were damn good shows. All you do is watch the videos of them. They hold up today. That's how good they were. And today, everything's sanitized. Doesn't mean I was right. They're the ones making billions of dollars, so maybe that's the way to do it. But I didn't have billions of dollars. I just had my heart, my soul, and I put every into that, over that, into the company. And if you could do something over again, would you do anything different? I would walk before I ran. You know, all of a sudden, we're getting hit with, we're on TV and uh, MSG in New York at $3,000 a week. Sunshine Network in Florida at $3,000 a week. Plus our normal things we didn't pay for, our TV Philly and uh, Sports Channel America, which has all over the country. But who knew when? Friday at 3 o'clock in Boston, uh, Saturday at 9 a.m. And this case, we're everywhere, but never at the same time. So, yeah, I think I would have solidified that more getting better, getting advertising for it and things of that nature. We didn't do it. We went into it like, psh, hell's bells. And it made it impossible to catch up. That's what I would do differently. Or, in all fairness, you know, the internet wasn't there yet. Yeah. If it was five years later, I'd have been charging $5 a pop for people to watch our arena shows, and we'd have been solvent from day one. Yeah. There was no internet. There was nobody, you know, our guys, they're doing tape trading our fans. I mean, the very first big show we did, which was main evented by uh, Stan Hansen, Terry Funk, Kevin Sullivan, and Abdul the Butcher. That's a match I want to see. But it turns out, in Japan, there was a ton of people wanting to see that match, and they were tape trading with people from Philadelphia, and we got about 30 orders for VHS tapes from Japan. I said, we don't get that in New Jersey. How we get that? What? I said, I'm learning every day on, on the fly. Yeah. The, the Japanese audience was a huge plus for us. They loved our stuff, and they loved the guys we were using. They love Terry Funk and Abdul and Hanson. They're all huge in Japan. Sullivan. If we want to find the book, buy the book, where do we look to get the book? Well, the easiest way is Amazon, but it's in any bookstore you go to. And you probably any department, any place that sells books, actually. And also out in Kindle and in audio. Uh, the audio version Sean did, actually. He did a pretty good job. Uh, got a couple of voices down perfectly. Some not so much, but... Audiobook's good, too. Any one of those versions, I can pretty much guarantee you won't be disappointed. All I would say is, go read the reviews. The people, the fans that have written reviews, there aren't a ton of them, but the ones that have, you know, on both Amazon and Goodreads and places like that, they've all been really good reviews. So they really enjoyed the book, and that means a lot, because I wanted to give something back to the fans. I love them all. They, they made us. Well, there's a lot of loyal fans out there in wrestling, especially, you know, I, I grew up in the South, even though my dad was from New Jersey. And, you know, I think these some of these true hard fans, you know, follow everything that these wrestlers do. And hopefully the book should do very, very well. When, Tell you straight up, it's, it's a good book. It really is it's entertaining as hell. How about pitching it to Hollywood? You know, we talked to a producer i have a niece who's a producer in hollywood and she's talked about wanting to do a docu-series on the book mm-hmm. as opposed to an actual you know one-time or a big movie or a production so we'll see i mean there are a lot of stories and 
the dark side of the ring, this and that. But this book it tells you some from rags to riches to rags. Crazy up and down ride. It's a little engine that could and did and then didn't. It's, it's an interesting <laughs> book. It really is. So, well, Todd, I appreciate you coming on the show, and hopefully we covered some good stuff here that people can learn from, and they want to go out and find the book. Look in any distributed version of the book out there. Todd is God. It's all about the ECW and some great stories there. And this has been Todd Gordon, and my name is John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. 